Can I just introduce our speaker? He's the Ibn Haldun uh, Chair of Islamic Studies at the American University in Washington. Before that, you were a former uh, High Commissioner uh, in the UK. And you've also been a distinguished uh, visiting uh, chair, I think, for Middle East studies at U.S. Navy post. Uh, was it the post graduate college or no, no, it's Naval, Academy Naval Academy in Annapolis, and uh, also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, uh, and described by uh, one uh, organisation by the BBC as one of the world's, if not the world's, leading authority on contemporary Islam. That's probably more introduction than I need. Give you. So let's see the film and then over to you. Thank you. At the Cairo Cross, there is nothing spectacular or even dramatic in the climate or the mountains, but the air is almost tense in its silence, so insolently indifferent to me and my talents. Here, all is all and hush. Far beyond the past, Kabuls and Samarkands, all that the urban imagination conjures in nostalgia, the mainstays of conquest, that flooded the fat lands this side of the past, Delhi and Agra, we irresistible lakes of Jeremy's end. We hear strange to hear. And almost does the distant din of battle, the clang and clamor of men at war, sea bringing of sea, cries of death and victory of who scattered his heart in war for the secret treasures of the Ganges. Kingdoms rising as swiftly as the slope of a scimitar and vanishing as swiftly. These particular mountains seem to suggest its supreme indolence. You who would strive and strut and sweat, look on us and wonder. They say it was an empire once, and that recently, on which the sun never set. Today, this legacy is a toy train, some cement blocks and tidy heaps, to sort German tanks, if you please, and some insignia and escutcheons scratched like military badges on the shoulders of wayside rocks. Fading and exotic memories of Gurkha and Sikh, plump, open mouthed lizards sitting so still they could be part of the regimental emblem. Like wind they came, like water they left. The thousands of soldiers, the thousands of years, Passages long gone, long forgotten in this catacomb of desire and history. Afrika and Shinwari, and before them old Takra, watch from eagle eyes. Old Conqueror, gaze on these and wonder. Old Traveler, be warned and step softly. The hills seem to know, and the air whispers. This evanescent journey, this mad rush, will continue, will remain as desperate and as passionate as of yore. But to this end we must come, silence beyond and silence behind. To this end, teasing imagination leads us and leaves us.
Thank you, <coughs> Professor Coker, for that warm introduction. I am delighted to be back at the LSE. My connections are long and deep. In fact, last night, one of your colleagues, Lord Giddens, chaired a session at uh, Chatham House, so they continue. And I have with me on the group, working with me on my projects uh, as part of my team, uh, two very significant players, also from the LSE, Harrison Aiken, sitting here in front, and uh, Dr. Amne Hoti, my daughter, who was also at the LSE. And they are very proud to be alums and delighted uh, to be back. Uh, the three letters of the alphabet, LSE, really form a very powerful symbol uh, on our planet in terms of scholarship and innovative thinking. So thank you and thank you for joining me this afternoon. My focus will be on my book, The Thistle and The Drone. But the book raises many issues that go beyond just looking at the relationship between the United States and these tribal societies which I'm focusing on in this particular study. There are issues of ethics, of morality, of ethnicity, of leadership, of codes of behavior clashing, and of course of the war on terror, issues of security and terrorism. But above all, and certainly for me, this study raises the perhaps the biggest issue, which is how do we look at, how do we understand, how do we appreciate the other? And I mean this in the most profound sense. We have the other in terms of religion, in terms of ethnic identity. In these societies, tribal societies, we have the other defined by virtually every aspect of life, structure, leadership, history, the code. How do we deal with them? Do we approach them through an interfaith frame? We all, the children of God, we must sit and talk. And I've done many of these interfaith conferences and I've participated in many interfaith initiatives, including with some very prominent interfaith leaders in the UK. But I've always felt that the interfaith dialogue takes us to a certain point and no more. We really need to understand to penetrate beneath the surface. So, do we look at alternative methods to understand the, the other? Uh, today, after the terrible incidents on 9-11, there is a tendency to look at these societies through the prism of security, of terrorism. So everything is analyzed through that particular prism. And it becomes very difficult to really understand who these people are, to distinguish the good and the bad, to point out the problems, the causes, the factors, the history of these particular areas. And here, my anthropology, my training as an anthropologist at SOAS, I've got a PhD from SOAS many, many years ago, came of great use. And I felt that the anthropological method, and you have such great names in the uh, department here at the LSE, and I was privileged to work with them like I.M. Lewis and Ernest Gellner, the giants, that anthropology offers 
a comprehensive view of a society. So while anthropologists look at religion, they also look at economics and politics and leadership. So the full circle of a community. Then anthropology gives us the advantage of looking at societies in a cross-cultural frame. We can see societies on one in one region and compare them to societies in another region and so on and so on and so on. And if we combine this with history, we get a fairly good idea of where these people are coming from. And then if you apply political science and international relations, you suddenly have a fairly good idea of that particular society. For example, the relationship between center and periphery, the relationship which I will maintain in this study and I will argue this afternoon, the relationship which is broken and which in fact is the basic cause for much of the violence in this post 9-11 phase of our mutual histories. My own training, not only as an academic but as an administrator in the tribal areas of Pakistan, in the old frontier province and in Balochistan, allowed me to combine my anthropological interests and my administrative ones where I could then begin to understand these tribes and how best to help bridge the gap that existed between the center and the periphery. And very often it was simply a question of reaching out, talking to them and hearing them, hearing what these people had to say of themselves and the needs and the importance of their identity. And we must never underestimate tribal identity. I know the word now is loaded. Politically correct scholars don't even use it anymore. They'll talk of indigenous people or ethnicity or ethnic groups. But the problem I had in dealing with the tribes was that when I would ask them, who are you, what do you, how do you identify yourself? They would say in reply, I am a tribesman of this tribe. The exact translation of Qom or Khil in uh, tribal societies, Pashtuns, uh, Bedouin and Berbers is actually tribe. So that's how they saw themselves. They were phyletic boundaries, ethnic boundaries. And everyone knew who's, who was who on this linear charter which connected them all. Then of course, these tribes equated their residence where they lived as a tribe with the state itself once the modern state appeared in the Muslim world in the 19th century and onwards. So we have Saudi Arabia. The whole peninsula was named after the Sauds. The tribe takes over and they say instead of forming a modern state, naming this after some historical event or region or a river or whatever, we will call it after our tribe, so Saudi Arabia. Afghanistan, now those of you dealing with Afghanistan will appreciate that Afghanistan simply means the land of the Afghan and Afghan means Pashtun, the largest ethnic tribe in that area, the Pashtuns who live in Afghanistan, eastern Afghanistan primarily and in northwest Pakistan. So the entire country is called Afghanistan, the land of the Afghan. Balochistan, the biggest province in Pakistan, the land of the Baloch. Waziristan, 
the agency, the most troubled agency in Pakistan today, after the Wazir tribe. So you can see the sense of tribal identity is very strong in these particular groups. Now the problem that we faced after 9-11 was this, that the dominant conceptual narrative, the dominant master narrative, if you like, of how to understand the world we were living in was reduced to something called the clash of civilizations. Uh, Professor Bernard Lewis wrote something about the clash of civilizations and talked about it in terms of his own discipline history. And Professor Samuel Huntington at Harvard picked up the concept and wrote a popular essay and then a popular book on the clash of civilizations. Now this is happening on the eve of 9-11. The thesis, as you probably know, is a very simple one. That there has been an inherent clash between the West and the East. It's as simple as that and therefore as flawed as that. So basically the Chinese, the Indians, the Muslim world, particularly the Muslim world are the enemy and this fight has been going on and there is an intrinsic, inherent incompatibility between these two positions. And one or the other must triumph. So this is a war which will end in the complete victory of one or the other group. Now, simplistic as it was, it was also a very powerful argument and you can see some merit in it. After all, we have had a period of colonization where for centuries the West colonized Africa and Asia. Early on we've had the Ottomans invading Europe. We have had before that the Crusades coming from Europe into the Middle East. So there have been back and forth periods in history and even before that back to the origins of Western civilization in Greece the very notion of Greece the Greeks, the Athenians facing the barbarians the literal translation of barbarians comes from the notion of people who do not speak the Greek language and who did not speak it were people to the east the Persians in time that became Christians versus the Muslims the problem after 9-11 immediately was this, that while you had 19 or 1900 or 19,000 or 190,000 Al-Qaeda committed to attacking the West, you also had a billion and a half people preoccupied with very many other things and the attacking on the West thesis for them was just absurd. But the thesis, clash of civilizations, now painted this entire civilization, the Muslim world, with one broad brush. So here was a clash of civilizations. At one master stroke, this idea erased sect, ethnicity, tribe, religion, national boundaries. And everyone became an enemy if your name was Chaudhry or Khan or Ahmed. You are potentially a terrorist and potentially capable of blowing yourself up in the neighborhood. 
and I can give you dozens and dozens of stories along these lines. Therefore, if you follow the logic of this argument, therefore it became imperative to develop or devise a weapon which would contain these societies and destroy the men of violence. And they had to be checked. There should be no ambiguity about that. These men of violence have to be checked and checked effectively. And do so with the minimum of loss on our side. So that the minimum of loss of American soldiers, British soldiers and so on. Keeping boots off the ground. And what better method than the drone? And this is where the drone enters our story. Straight away, you have now a scenario where you have these tribal societies, particularly those anthropologists identify as segmentary lineage societies. These are very specific tribal societies. So you have a society which has a highly developed sense of descent, a charter, tracing descent from a common ancestor. Very often the name of the ancestor becomes the name of the tribe. So the Yusuf Zai tribe in the, among the Pashtuns. The word comes from Yusuf, that is Joseph, the biblical Joseph. Yusuf and Zai means sons of so straight away you have this descent. Sons of Yusuf are all Yusuf Zayn. And of course now there are hundreds of thousands of Yusuf Zayn. The segmentary lineage society is structured in such a way that they have what are called nesting attributes. So smaller and smaller and smaller clans fitting into bigger and bigger and bigger clans. It's almost like a mathematical equation. And all aware of this relationship between one and the other. And also acutely aware of the egalitarian nature of society. This is a very important point. These are really, as they were called by Europeans in the 19th century, Republicans. These are the Greeks in terms of really wanting an Athenian, a Spartan kind of society where everyone is equal and everyone has a right to speak in the Jirga. The Jirga is the council of elders. So you can see a structure forming here, association with territory, jirgas to mediate conflict, to continue with stability in society, a place for elders but not authority to the point where they become kings or they can become tyrants, and above all, a code, a code of behavior for the Pashtuns, for the Pashtun called the Pashtun Wali or the Pashtun Wali meaning the code of the Pashtun. This is very important. This defines them. So they will do certain things because it is not expected. And they will do other things because it is expected. That's the code. And all these tribes, segmentary lineage society tribes, all have a highly developed code. The code, if you break it down, is primarily hospitality, so you must treat your guest as very special, even to the point of risking your life. And again, in my work I've documented case after case after case, where the host will actually 
put himself in a very difficult position simply to uphold hospitality. Second, courage, to show courage. Manly courage but womanly courage. Both men and women are expected to be very courageous and brave. So in the defense of their community or honor, upholding the code, they will actually be very, very courageous fighters. Another feature of the code is revenge. Now revenge is extremely important in this society and it acts as a deterrent. So if I were to shoot someone, I would know that I may have shot my enemy, but the brother of the enemy or the father or the son is going to take revenge. So I'll think ten times before I go and commit a murder or commit some act of crime. And there are sayings. There's a saying, a famous saying, I took revenge after a hundred years and I took it too quickly. So you pass on the notion of revenge from one generation to the next generation. Now this again is a very important feature. Many of the customs of the tribes I want to underline and point out because I know we have colleagues from the Middle East Department and the Asia Center are contrary to Islam. This is a very important point in our understanding of the clash of civilizations. These practices like revenge, honor killings, and in Africa's parts of the Middle East, female circumcision are categorically against Islam itself. There's no Islamic sanction for them. But they've been incorporated into Muslim tribes and therefore they themselves will say, well, this is Islam because we do it. And I've spent hours and hours with tribes, tribal peoples talking about it. Now, coming to the correlation I want to present to you. Take a look at the correlation. You have the segmentary lineage society tribes, the Pashtun, Somali, Yemen, Eastern Turkey, where the Kurds live. And these are precisely, precisely the groups that have been most struck by the drones. Now it is up to you scholars to work out why and how. The thesis that is presented in this book is precisely what I have pointed out. When you have a highly developed sense of a code and your community is attacked, particularly by attacked by a air missile which comes out of nowhere, this thing is flying overhead all night, you can't even see it but you can hear it, it's keeping kids awake, keeping women awake, it's creating a complete trauma in all of society, good guy, bad guy, everyone. People are fleeing from that area just to get away from that noise, people haven't slept for weeks and weeks. And don't forget, this thing just goes on and on. It doesn't come and go. It's there 24 hours. It just keeps on all the time. It has the sound of a lawnmower in action. So you combine that with the code of revenge and you have these violent, almost too terrible to even discuss, acts of complete insanity. I would call it that. Because the acts of violence that you're seeing are a breakdown of the tribal code which has an element of courage and honor and so on and of Islam itself because these are Muslim. 
You're seeing a complete breakdown. How are you seeing a breakdown? You're seeing a breakdown, for example, of the TTP, Tehreek-e Taliban Pakistan. That's the Taliban strain that functions and operates in the tribal areas of Pakistan. Going into schools, going into mosques, going into passenger buses and blowing themselves up. And if you have any doubt as to their motivation, we have recorded the number of times they've gone in and done something absolutely outrageous, killing a 10-year-old boy in front of his father and saying, we have done this deliberately so you understand how we feel. Killing these tourists recently in Pakistan, they issued a statement saying we have done this because of the drone strike which took place a few days ago. So you can see that the cause and effect is quite clear and I've given you the main tribes that are being uh, subjected to the drones. Now, this book, The Thistle and the Drone, looks at 40 such case studies. 40 case studies is a great number of studies to look at and I was very privileged to have as part of my team, I've already mentioned some, uh, Harrison, uh, Frankie Martin, who's here from Cambridge, where he's studying, uh, Amine, uh, sitting at the back. Uh, these young people helping me uh, on this particular project. And recently, of course, we were joined by Ibrahim as the latest, youngest member of the team. We looked at 40 case studies starting from Morocco right up to the Caucasus. 40 case studies and in the context of four stages of development. First, the period of history which we could call the Emirates, when they have a kind of Islamic ethos to their existence. It is not Islamic in the orthodox sense, but is Islamic in a sociological sense. These are Muslim tribes with a great deal of freedom and egalitarianism, but still they are Muslim tribes. Then we have the period of colonization, and here we see the clash between the center and the periphery, very sharp. The next phase is both the modern state, the emergence of the modern state, the independence, mid-60s, mid-70s onwards in the Muslim world. And very quickly, the modern state, Iraq, Libya, Syria, very quickly the modern state becomes a dictatorship run by some crazy uniformed colonel or brigadier or general. And very quickly the old patterns of center and periphery are immediately assumed by the center. Torture, rape, bombing, gassing the periphery. And then you have the 9-11 phase, which is the current phase. Four distinct phases. And with each phase, the lot of the periphery becomes worse and worse and worse with each phase. And when you have intolerance of the relationship between the center and periphery, you can assume that the minority in that country is not going to be spared. So if the central government is playing havoc with the periphery of the nation, if Saddam Hussein is bombing the Kurds up in the north and using mustard gas, he is not going to spare the Shia or whichever community that annoys him or angers him. And that is the reality of uh, the Muslim world. With 
9-11, we now have the drones. So the peripheral areas, please note, already impoverished, already backward, already far, far behind the rest of the nation. And the statistics are horrendous. When I served in these areas, for example, Waziristan, roads, colleges, hospitals didn't exist. Maybe one road connecting the main city of the frontier Peshawar to the headquarters and that's it. Literacy barely existed. Barely. The women of the tribal areas of Pakistan is a shocker, shocking statistic. The literacy rates are zero, almost zero. Now, if that is the situation, you have to ask yourselves, what is the solution? Is it to educate these women so they can educate the next generation? Or is it to hurl drones at them? That's what you have to ask yourselves. The metaphor, of course, of the thistle and the drone, you will recognize. The thistle comes from Tolstoy's Haji Murad. It's a popular symbol used for these tribes. It's been used again and again in literature because many Europeans, uh, especially the Scots, like Sir Walter Scott, saw their own identity in a romantic, idealistic way reflected in these tribes. The code of honor, the clan, the uh, tradition of the warrior ethos, all these reflected in the tribal societies that they encountered. And so the societies did have that kind of positive press also at that time. Now, if our thesis, and it must be, is that this war on terror must be won so that there is stability, that there is peace and there is some harmony in, uh, in our world, because it is spilling constantly into our world here in the UK and the USA, then we need to devise a strategy that works, a strategy that is effective. And here's a simple fact of life, a premise for you. I believe that this paradigm, the current paradigm, is simply not working. It is not working because after over a decade in Afghanistan, over a decade, longest war in America's history, you have the green on blue killings, Afghan soldiers killing Americans and uh, the British soldiers. You have the highest suicide rates among American veterans in history. Shocking figures, something like 22 killing themselves a day. You have these um, strikes with Afghans being killed, wedding parties, funeral gatherings. And you have the spillover in a country like Pakistan, a major non-NATO ally. And please consider the impact there. Pakistanis will say not a single Pakistani was involved on 9-11. And yet, we have lost something like 50 to 55,000 Pakistanis killed and billions of dollars spent. And there is no end in sight. This violence just continues. <coughs> so it's clear that a new approach is needed. A new approach that has to be long-term in perspective and that involves the understanding of these tribal societies which neither America nor the central government in Pakistan and other governments in the center and the tribes are able to evolve. 
three points of the triangle, the West, United States slash NATO, UK and so on, tribal society, second point, third point of the triangle, the central government. Now, unless these three points in the triangle are in some harmony, in some compatibility, you cannot solve the war on terror. The problem is that the three points are not in consonance. So you have a cloud of misinformation and disinformation and I would say some elements of hostility hanging over this entire enterprise. For this book, when I was interviewing a whole series of people, whole series of people, so we'd be, uh, my team would be busy talking to uh, tribesmen in Somalia or the Gaza or in uh, the Philippines, and we'd be talking to the senior most officials, American, Pakistani generals, ambassadors. If we asked Pakistanis who created the TTP, who's behind them, where do they come from, they will instinctively say Americans or the Indians. That's the first Pakistani reaction. If you ask the Americans, they will instinctively say Pakistan. So if we can't agree, two allies cannot agree who's behind the creation of the most deadly force in Pakistan playing havoc, just playing havoc in Pakistan, how are we going to deal with them? And remember what I've said, it's over 10 years. Hundreds of thousands of people have died. Billions, if not trillions, have been spent. And we are still nowhere in seeing the end in sight. This can't carry on. This paradigm has failed. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper into this paradigm. What is happening with the structure of tribal society? I maintain that there are three pillars of authority in these tribal societies. Three pillars. The first pillar is based in the authority of the tribal elders. We've discussed them. Tribal lineage, genealogical charter, councils of elders. The second pillar is the mullah, the religious figure. He runs the madrasa and the mosque. And contrary to all the stereotypes in the West, the madrasa is not a nursery of suicide bombers. It simply means a school. It's as much a school as a Jewish school, Christian school, a UK school or any other school. Now, they don't have resources. Their teachers are not particularly educated. I've seen these schools. My nightmare was as the administrator how to improve their standards. Sometimes they're sitting under a tree. That's a madrasa. Now, the role of the mullah is to mediate. When tribes fight, when clans fight, the mullah acts as mediator. The mullahs are also a target now. And then the representative of the central government, the political agent, a post created by the British, and by and large, by and large, very effective in maintaining some stability. Today, please note this thesis, these three pillars of authority have been either demolished or destroyed. So demolished means they don't exist. Destroyed means they're in a state of complete disrepair. The thesis needs to be understood that until you create a structure that will check the violence internally, no force from outside, neither the Americans nor the Pakistanis or Afghans or whichever central government we're dealing with, will be able to check them. And how does this process start? Again, let's analyze this. The year is 2004, when the drones start in Waziristan. 
2004 also the pakistan army invades waziristan on a large scale immediately you see the connection here drones foreign army local the pakistan army is looking for terrorists working with the americans but they also blowing up villages people people are disappearing people are being killed and then you have the suicide bombers they're coming around and they're blowing up people now when you combine these three factors of violence and you add tribal rivalry remember revenge is part of that society you combine this the effect of that on that society is devastating and i ask you have we become such automatons have we become such beasts have we become so indifferent to human suffering that because people are not like us they are the other we don't care for women and children what's happening to their lives and i'm talking of entire societies communities that are like little universes they are their own universe they are being completely destroyed so if you go to waziristan today the entire tribe and we're talking of hundreds of thousands of people maybe 70 80 90 percent will be living in shanty towns in utter destitution because they've escaped the horrors of their own homes no money they poverty illiterate and they're living outside can we just abandon them and hope that somehow more violence as the drones will make their lives better we really need to be doing some very serious thinking on this so far the discussion on the drone is its technical developments and that is moving very fast and the nightmare is that in two decades you'll have many many countries with the drone and the capacity to kill their own people or cross borders and people comments which may not be very responsible so we see the technological developments and the fact that it's keeping our troops and our boots off the ground do we connect that to the societies that i am describing and i'm not talking of one society or two i'm talking of 40 case studies which takes in the entire sweep of our planet and i'll start winding up now look at the sources of violence the ttp in the tribal areas boko haram in west africa you've heard of the dreaded boko haram equally violent al shabab in somalia all three are coming straight out of this tribal background that i've been talking about again think about this this is not an accident if you're a mathematician you'll be able to form mathematical equations and patterns out of this which is what we anthropologists prided ourselves on professor kogo with a little bit of indulgence here now let me end this by pointing out something that will again amaze you wali khan the leader of the pashtun ethnic group in the world the son of the legendary frontier gandhi was asked about his ethnicity and he said i am a pashtun first second i am a muslim third i am a pakistani here are the three levels of identity for him and still people doubt the ethnic underlay of society usama bin laden talk, consistently talked of his ethnic background as a yemeni tribesman his poetry and his rhetoric is permeated with ethnic images of tribalism raids warriors flashing the sword 
honor of the 19 hijackers, 18 belonged to the Yemeni tribal background. 10 came from one province in Asir in Saudi Arabia of a Yemeni background. Osama's own staff member, key member of his staff said that in fact 95% of Al-Qaeda was Yemeni. The last two houses in which Osama lived, one was called Gandhi House in Afghanistan and the other was called Waziristan House. He's throwing clues for us to understand this. But we are thinking clash of civilizations. We are fighting Islam. We've gone off charging into a very different direction. So we're looking at verses from the Quran and saying, how does this justify the violence? And we're finding it difficult to adjust, but we're carrying on along that line. And here, in fact, are the clues provided by ethnicity and tribalism. So I will um, conclude by saying that where and how we are confronting the 21st century and where we are today with a sense of uncertainty, the war on terror unending, violence which could hit us at any time, anywhere, which concerns me as an individual, it concerns me as a father, as a grandfather, and I want, as a former administrator, to be able to say, let us check it effectively, let us stop it. I am not confident that we are doing anything which is effectively going to stop it. And we need to really fall back to some of the philosophic underpinnings of our culture. And to me, there are enough nuggets for us to inspire us. One of them is, one of them is a great Jewish saying, Tikkun Olam, which means to heal a fractured world. If you see the world as fractured, which it is right now for the tribal societies I've talked of, then we need to go out and heal it. Because if we don't heal it, we become part of that damaged world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Well, we have about 35, 40 minutes uh, for a question and answer session. I'm going to ask uh, those of you who like to uh, ask a question to, to stand up. I think it's best in this uh, room and uh, just identify yourselves, your institutional affiliation, your name as well. But I wonder if I, I, I could start um, because I was struck by the fact that uh, you mentioned Haji Murad, the great uh, novella by Tolstoy and the uh, American literary critic Harold Bloom describes Haji Murad as the greatest uh, literary warrior in the Western tradition, with perhaps the exception of Achilles. Uh, and I think there's something in, the, in war itself which creates this, this otherness, if you like, uh, which has been there for some time. The first is the fact that the, the, the death of the warrior tradition within the West. We call drone pilots cubicle warriors. Uh, we give them decorations. Uh, they are encouraged to see themselves as part of a warrior culture, a Western warrior culture that extends many centuries back in history. And yet the distance comes from them not being able to perhaps understand what Clausewitz would call those moral forces, courage, revenge, and everything else which used to be part of the makeup of war. And the other thing is that technology is distancing yourself. I remember Ian Lewis gave a lecture uh, 10 years ago here on the Apache helicopter 
what the helicopter was in Somalia is what the drone is now, how the helicopter kept people awake at night, stampeding of cattle in the marketplace, uh, women's dresses being lifted up by the updraft of the, of the helicopter blades, etc., and saying that this was a, a weapon of terror. It, it, it terrorized the local population, although it wasn't intended, of course, to do that. Um, I don't know whether you want to, to comment uh, on that. And then also the great Kipling poet about how 2,000 pounds of education is felled at one blow by eight rupees jazel. If you go back to the 19th century, Afghan warriors, Afghan Pashtun tribesmen, had superior marksmanship skills to the British. And then in the 20th century, you get technology as the quick fix. So these are from my tradition, which is looking at war. Uh, I was struck by that. Uh, set of observations. I'm not sure whether you want to come back on this or not. I'll just comment because I think these are important observations and like you, I've been looking at, at war also and I've been uh, being in the tribal areas, very much involved in wars, actual wars, uh, having to face uh, tribes, uh, being part of the great game in that part of the world. And the important point is that the tribesmen felt again in the context of his code that someone is firing at him or not her, him, it's always the man who's out there fighting and that they can fire back. And very often, as you point out, uh, under, during the British times, the Pashtun would go up on the hills, take the advantage or the vantage point and be able to hold off an entire regiment and then, if attacked, disappear and come back and fight another time. And the code of honor existed very much on both sides. So British regiments had, as we know, a highly developed code of honor, the regiment, and they had emblems and uh, rewards and medals and all kinds of things. And again, um, the word, the reputation mattered. So-and-so was a brave man, so-and-so was a coward and so on. The Four Feathers, of course, is one of the famous novels on this, on this whole issue. And that is why the Scots particularly and the Pashtuns sort of had this, I would say, kind of mutual admiration for each other because both acknowledged that this is going to be a tough fight and we still respect each other. The drone changes everything. And the helicopter, the Soviet helicopter, in the 1980s, as you know, with your um, uh, expertise on, on war, uh, actually changed everything because you go up on the hilltop and take your position and suddenly you see a helicopter hovering over you. How do you fight back? You can't it, at that height. Until the Americans came in and, in fact, with the Stinger missile, changed the course of history, allowing the Pashtuns to fight back, or the Afghans, not just the Pashtuns. And then came the drone. Now, the drone has created such an asymmetry that the entire tribe now becomes involved as complete helpless victims. So it's not just the militants or the bad guys who want to do damage or harm to the West or to the central government. It's the entire tribe because the drone strikes someone who may be wanted and kills 20 people or 30 people who are totally innocent. And that is what has changed forever. So a lot of tribesmen will say that the drone is not honorable, it's a very dishonorable weapon. It's being fought by people who do not have honor. Mm -hmm. And what I find is, again, the American army also has great pride in itself as containing soldiers with a great sense of honor. And again, they, they in fact vie for each other in terms of honor and competition, they're highly competitive, the best army in the world, the most advanced, the most powerful and so on. And take a look at the straws that are available to us. 22 soldiers, veterans killing themselves. If I was a soldier with that tradition of honor and I was sent uh, to these dusty settlements and I was caught up in 
having to fight and shoot at people who are so obviously impoverished and who are so obviously helpless who are then fighting back with whatever they have and I have superior air power and all the technology to actually not only finish that little group but finish 10,000 other people, I would feel very uneasy. The notion of the warrior ethos, which is so embedded in the American army or the British army. And our colleague, uh, Colonel Wilkerson, who is the former chief of staff to General Colin Powell, he wrote a review of this book and he actually said this. He said, this is the first book which gives the way ahead because as a, as a soldier, he said that I'm speaking as a soldier, because we in the army exist within what is called the warrior ethos. And that is being challenged from within the army. Because are you asking yourself, is this what a warrior does? You know, if you have a warrior ethos, if you're just uh, people on a computer, then there's no connection between you and the killed. Otherwise, you need to at least have some sense of, here's the enemy, I don't like him, he's completely the opposite of what I am, but it is a worthy engagement and I will triumph because I am right or I have better skills at fighting. And that is what makes the warrior ethic. Um, similarly, you are hearing of all these uh, strange psychological disturbances among the young people operating these drones, the drone operators, you know, all the stress. Um, what is the expression, Harrison? The PGS uh, syndrome, you know, among, among, the, uh, among the operators. Again, you can understand these bright, enthusiastic young soldiers sitting in an office somewhere in the Midwest having to press a button and they see this on the screen and they see people running or as they say, some of them aboard they see they say this we see, see them having sex all right we'll blow them up tomorrow morning i don't think this is very good for the morale of anyone let alone soldiers in uniform and that's having an impact also so my concern of course is that sooner or later that will be corrected because the united states is a very advanced kind of society where this thing sooner or later is reviewed and corrected but we are talking of societies where you don't have a voice where no one is talking how many times have we seen someone from Waziristan appearing on the BBC or Channel 4. How many times? And that's the second half of this war on terror equation. We don't. So the result is we don't know what's going through and what, what they're experiencing, except that studies like the New York University study, Stanford, UN, have confirmed that there is a problem. Thank you. Right, let me open it up. Yes. Uh, well, it might be best. Yes, please. Uh, my name is uh, Jill Stewart. You mentioned the attacks, the drone attacks on Pashtun villages, and in the same breath you spoke of the breakdown in Pashtun Mali. And one might be tempted to speculate that the attacks have just the opposite effect to reinforce these pieces of Pashtun Mali. I wonder if you could identify other causes, like the loss of the Maliks, the corruption, the drugs, the drugs, that sort of thing. Yeah, Mr. Stewart, I thought I had done that uh, in some detail, but I can see that uh, I didn't uh, sufficiently expand. Uh, if you recall, I talked about the three pillars internal to that society, and they've existed for a thousand years. Those pillars have now either shaken or been destroyed. Now, in that vacuum, there is no authority. Uh, and that destruction is not caused, I want to repeat this, by the drones. It is drones plus central government actions, army actions, plus suicide bombers, plus tribal rivalries, equals destruction of pillars. When you destroy the pillars, you create a vacuum, and in that vacuum you have the men of violence. 
who can then through sheer terror dominate that area. So the elders who in my time, if there was a problem, I'd call them and straight away I'd say, that man is a murderer, he's committed murder, I want him in 24 hours. And they would produce that man. Today they don't exist. In Waziristan alone, something like 400 elders have been killed. Now 400 elders to anyone who knows tribal society really means the decapitation of a society. Tribal societies are not heavily, they're not dense populated. It, these are sparse, sparsely populated societies. And 400 elders with authority, with a reputation, with a background being killed is devastation. So that's what combines to create this. Yes. Thank you. It was uh, very eloquently pointed out the worry simply between the human rights and the But looking back, have there not been a case for a standoff firepower with you? Collective punishment views under the barrage. There were screw guns, mountain artillery, and there were punitive expeditions playing up the villages, defenses and villages with biplanes. Uh, in a mix of um, subsidies and various functions. And that, on the whole, most of the time, the barring education crisis seemed to work. If we look ahead, um, there's a crisis that was going to occur this in Pakistan, by no means more who argues, as a physicist, that the problem of Pakistan will only be resolved by some mix of development politics, negotiation, and attrition. And he calls for more drone strikes. It was without that that is simply no way of holding back the, the gathering strength and the business of the Taliban. Um, and final one, I guess, is if the, if the mix of drone strikes and revenge is so uh, murderously inevitable, why aren't Taliban complaining about this? I'm sure they would say, they would say for themselves, at least. This is actually rather a good time. We can exploit this. But we hear again and again calls to stop. Um, a lot of what you said, certainly in your first half of your comment, is in the book. The British in the 19th century, the first Anglo Afghan War, the second Anglo Afghan War, really implemented a straightforward military policy which is invade capture Kabul and sit tight. And after the disasters, they realized a different approach is absolutely vital. And that's when they came up with the political agent. Now, if you recall, and I'm sure you do, the minutes of Lord Curzon, who was the greatest proponent of the political agents at the turn of the century, he said the logic was that one political agent was equal to so many regiments. And you had to weigh which one he wanted to use as the British imperial power. And therefore, there needed to be a mix, as we used to say in the field, between the carrot and the stick all the time. You must have force as a backup. But once you use force, it must be effective force. There's no point in parading our men or throwing in some missiles, and then we're back to square one. Now, his dilemma was, if you recall the phrase he used, uh, moving the steamroller, the very famous phrase of Gazan. And he said, I will not do it. He also said that. He said, I'm not the man who's going to start it. Yes, the British sent in the regiments, but what did they do? Read your history. They didn't stay very long. 
the, the division marched into Waziristan and marched straight out. They did the same in Tira in the 1890s, marched into Tira and marched out. And that had virtually no effect. And also, I don't want to romanticize war at all, but the English too played cricket. And there was also that sense of, well, we are coming, we must be very fair. So any notification of bombardment or even the use of the RAF later on in the 1920s was preceded by leaflets. So leaflets were dropped, this is absolutely a rule there. We're going to bomb this village or whatever. So everyone left on Sunday, 10 to 11 p.m. So it was known that well, we have to do its routine. So the plane came, dropped a bomb and flew off. And so they could record that we actually bombed the tribal areas. Tribes have all gone off a couple of hundred yards out and they will come back and continue what they're doing. And what succeeded? If you recall your history of that area, when Miss Molly Ellis was kidnapped from Kohat, do you remember the case? The most famous case of that part of the world of that time. How was she recovered? Not by missiles, not by regiments, not by the army. She was recovered through entirely political officers going in there, spending months and months and then extracting her from the religious leaders. Very effective. The British had now discovered the method of dealing with these tribal societies. Now, your citing Parvez Boy, who I know is a colleague of mine, friend of mine, a lot of the Pakistani intellectuals, and I want to alert you on this, are based in Lahore or Karachi. They have an innate attitude to the tribal areas or to Balochistan. So the innate attitude is, well, the treatment or the way to fix these areas is to show force so we use more drones and therefore they will solve the problem. Or why don't the uh, tribesmen complain or why don't the uh, TTP complain? Of course they're complaining. Read their literature and hear them. They're complaining all the time. We met a Masood from Waziristan in Athens. Just last week we were in Athens uh, with my team. We happened to meet him. He was at the Pakistan embassy. They gave a dinner for me and there was this Masood. And he confirmed two things. Absolutely confirmed what I'm saying. Number one, that they loathe and hate the drone for all the kinds of reasons we are discovering. And number two, and this is alarming, he said the lines for suicide bombers are unending. There's no end to it. Now, I don't want that. So it's all right for theoretical people sitting in Islamabad to say more drones, more drones. And you have this non-stop suicide people being killed. And we say somewhere, somewhere along the line, they're suddenly going to stop fighting. They'll abandon the code and say, okay, we sit at home now because the drones are so effective. It hasn't worked. Now, even if it's worked, which I don't agree at all, although you've thrown in a very big authority, let me throw a slightly bigger authority to you. Imran Khan, who actually heads a political party, which has now a major presence in parliament, has said that the day I become Prime Minister, I will order the Pakistan Air Force to shoot down the drones. Nawaz Sharif, before he became Prime Minister and in his first speech after taking power, has said the drones must stop. So where do we go from there? Why aren't they listening to the advice of uh, Professor Hoodboy? Why aren't they listening? Aren't they Pakistanis, the Prime Minister of Pakistan? The leader of the second biggest party in Pakistan? Yeah, but that's something else. That's another point you're raising, which has nothing to do with Hudbo's point. I mean, that's the complete... And that again, I mentioned in the book, it is duplicitous. They've been doing it. 
they've been doing, Musharraf did it, the last Prime Minister did this, but suppose there is a situation, suppose we take these politicians, I'm giving you the people who've been voted in, who've got millions of Pakistanis voting for them, unlike Professor Hoodboy, suppose they do go ahead and shoot down the drones, we are then faced with a major, major political crisis between the West and Pakistan, which will have enormous implications. I don't want that to happen. As someone who has advocated and fought for better relations between the West and the Muslim world, that's going to be a complete disaster. So you need to think these things through. You know, it's all right to uh, just be emotional about the situation and assume somehow it will work, but so far I don't see any evidence of it. We've got uh, two questions in the front. You first, and then. Your name is? Salim. 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 Yes. I'm from Goldsmiths. You're from? Goldsmiths. 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 Central Coast Studies. There is an excellent analysis of the world with the tribe and tribes. I wonder whether you could share with us the idea of how that universe, that universe intersects the global, the global perspective, not the national, the global. Um, let, me, let me just bring the 7th July morning over here. Mm-hmm. Those youngsters have actually took the bombs in a underground station. Mm-hmm. That was a suicide bomb. Yes. If it's nothing else. And it was global. And the, the, the reason was that because of the invasion of Iraq. And they explicitly said so. And there was British foreign policy, that's why they did it. So I want you to take you back to historically mm-hmm. to look at the uh, Western foreign policy. Maybe you could briefly touch on the Af- Afghan Mujahideen uh, and the Russian invasion. Now, at that point, clearly, um, what's happened to this, as I can see, is, is that the, the West explicitly supported the Mujahideen. They're pumping $8 billion, so it's a lot of money. And virtually they've supported global jihad. I, I mean, and, and the, 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 the point that I'm trying to make to you over here is the West supported terrorism in one sense, it's a call to opportunity. I'm not talking about those of the sort in, 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 but they, they supported terrorist movement and global jihad. It's not this movement as well, in a sense. We were people recruiting here, youngsters from here, Muslim youngsters, to go to, in fact, Afghanistan. I think, I think we've got, I think we've got yeah. the question. Yeah. I ask you whether, whether you, you, you consider the modality of Western policy, the modality in one sense of the world, where it can support certain terrorist movements, when it suits his foreign policy, opposes other moments as well. Where it, it also, the other modality is, it, it is completely at home with Wahhabism, which is the Saudi version of Islam, but opposed to other versions of Islam. So I think this double standards are a real problem as well. Uh, thank you, Mr. Salim. Um, let me answer this. I do not subscribe to this the conspiracy of the Western world to destroy Islam. Number one, I do not subscribe to blaming the West for everything that's happening in the Muslim world. You cannot exonerate the bungling, the corruption, the pathetic attempts at central governments in the Muslim world for their own failures. Where does the West come in in terms of Saddam or Gaddafi and all these characters? So I don't accept that at all, number one. Number two, when you talk of the 1980s, as a conspiracy to promote terrorism. I was in the tribal areas and for the tribesmen, the United States was seen as a very strong ally and in very favorable terms. 
because they saw this country standing up and helping them and their kin, the brothers, you know, the tribes on both sides of the border against the Soviets. This is very important, this point to make. Well, I know that in the current literature it has become sort of uh, the West did this and the West did that. Secondly, thirdly, the phenomenon of the homegrown terrorists, which is what you are discussing, this ter- terrible incident that took place recently and a few years back. Now again, as a father, as a, my, my daughter, Amine, she studied at the LSE. She could have been in that uh, underground. This has to stop. And this has nothing to do with tribalism. This is the homegrown terrorists coming out of the immigrant community here in the UK or the USA. And the previous study of mine actually looked at Muslim communities in the USA. I spent a year in the field, one full year, studying Muslims in the United States, traveling the length and breadth. I went to a hundred mosques, and again, Frankie was with me and, uh, and Amine. And it was clear that the Muslim community, particularly the leadership, the imams, the social leadership, had to do much, much more to ensure that these young men, and they are young and they are men, do not go off the rails and do these stupid and violent things that they are doing, unfortunately, too frequently. For example, Mr. Salim, you remember the five young men from Virginia in the United States. So there were five young men, uh, Pakistani, Yemeni background, who went off to Pakistan to fight a jihad against America. Now, what sort of sanity was that? Young Americans going off to Pakistan to fight Americans. Suppose the leadership, the Muslim leadership had got hold of them and said, these are men with a lot of passion and we must do something for the Muslim world. That is their passion. And talk to them about going back to Pakistan, working in a hospital, working in a school, college, helping make a road. Don't you think it would have been a much more positive contribution then going off there and trying to fight a jihad, which which ended up in killing themselves or killing someone, and did end up in there being picked up and arrested and brought back, and now their lives are destroyed. And then the backlash against the larger community, who is not even aware of them. So I would say, rather than just looking at the West, we have the Muslim community has to look at itself, its own leadership, the education it has in its own societies, and then look at the tribal underlay of our societies. Remember the statistic I gave you, 0% female education. How are you blaming the West for that? The, the, Waziristan is not an American problem, it's not a British problem. It is a Pakistani problem. Pakistan must fix it. And the educational statistics I'm giving you were not left behind by the British. These, these are problems in Pakistan. So we need to be much more analytic and critical of our own societies. Thank you. Can I suggest we take two questions? One here and we have a second. My name is Nawal Gul, and my affiliation is that I'm actually from the USSR tribe. And, Professor Akbar, you talked about um, Kweli Khan and uh, his father um, uh, in the and, and the, the characteristics of the time being incredibly hospitality and revenge. Now, prior to the British leaving, he took out the revenge during, and managed to put this force of the Hidayat to the that actually was on the side of the non-violent man. How do we take out the revenge element now? Is it possibly to do with the funding that the Taliban received? You know, perhaps by the, uh, the Wahhabi movement, the Saudis, etc.? 
Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, uh, do you want me to answer now? Or? Uh, I, I think we'll have the second one. If yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so my name is Dorothea. And, um, uh, Your name is? Dorothea. Dorothea? Yeah, and I'm in social anthropology at Cambridge. Ah, you are with, uh, yes, I remember you from, you're one of Frankie's group. <laughs> yeah, so I have actually two brief questions. One is, when you pointed out the correlation between drum strikes and predominantly tribal areas, so I'm wondering how, why is that actually? How do you explain the fact that apparently tribal areas are disproportionately being targeted by drones? And the second point is that, so there's also areas that are being targeted which are not really tribal, like you mentioned Gaza, so a lot of what you presented sounded like the whole drone uh, thing was based on a misunderstanding of the tribal codes and these kind of things. So I wonder to what extent is it a deliberate strategy rather than a misunderstanding? Dorothea, uh, good question. In fact, both good questions. May I answer? Yes, the first question, uh, that is again discussed in some detail in the book. Ghaffar Khan is a remarkable man. And you guys should know him because he is in the Gandhi film, Attenborough's film. So he's, he's, he's a world figure. Unfortunately, he's not as well known as you should know him. He's called the frontier Gandhi. Ghaffar Khan, coming from a Pashtun tradition, in fact started the Khudai Khidmargar movement, which uh, Gul had referred to, saying that in fact Islam preaches not violence but non-violence. And saying in interviews that while Gandhi is my best friend, I wander around with him and we do all these um, actions which are non-violent resistance to the British. This is an Islamic tradition going back to the Prophet of Islam. Now this is a huge development. Now unfortunately, as you know, with the creation of Pakistan, he was completely sidelined. And a lot of people said he's a traitor and he, he's Gandhi's man and so on. So the movement never really took off. But you're absolutely right. I pointed out in the book that while the Pashtuns have produced the TTP, they've also produced Kofar Khan. And the challenge for Pashtun society, and it is a challenge, because it is racked by violence now, it's completely, it's broken down in the, in the old frontier, is to revive the idea of Kofar Khan, of non-violence in the Pashtun. So far, I don't see it happening. You, don't, you, you can't tell me that there's any credible movement, because it is so far off the screen, and, but that is needed. The young generation has to revive him and revive him as a central Pashtun feature of society. It's a big challenge and I wish you good luck. Jorthia's question, again, is easily answered and it's in the book. These peripheries are in tribal areas which are in mountainous regions, deep in deserts. These tribes live away from the highways and central authority. So if you were a militant or a murderer, which I don't suggest you are for a moment, you would find shelter there. If you are running from the law, you won't go to a big city where you'd be picked up, you know, who's this strange man with blood all over him. You'd go into the tribal areas and you'd seek hospitality or sanctuary from a local tribal chief who's not going to pry too deeply into why you're there. That is why so many of the wanted people find their way there, rightly or wrongly. They may be convicted wrongly, they may be actual uh, criminals, but they find their way there. And over the centuries, these areas have become areas harboring elements escaping central authority. 
So the lands themselves become known as the land of dissidence. This was a term used for these areas. In the west, in uh, Maghrib, in uh, northwest Africa, this was actually the name. The name they were called is the land of dissidence, the land of rebellion. In our part of the world, it's called Ghair Ilaka. So Ilaka means settled area, Ghair Ilaka means beyond, beyond the pale. And the reason is, is you, you can escape the long arm of the law. The test, and I keep coming back to the three pillars, is to ensure the writ of the state. It can be done, I've given case studies, where you can actually penetrate these areas and get your man. This can be done, but it has to be with the three pillars functioning. No three pillars, no stability. Simple. Drones are one major cause of three or four causes creating further instability. Rolatiya, you don't look too convinced. So do you have a follow-up comment? No, that's good. And, and about the second question, so on the areas which are not tribal, like Gaza? Like? Gaza. No, in fact, Gaza, the, the drones that are being used there are for the tribal groups in Gaza itself. You see, you're assuming that all Palestinians are non-tribal. In fact, they have very strong tribal uh, communities within uh, the Palestinians. Again, the, the principle is the same. principle is the same. Let's move on. Um, my name is Hannah Mustafa. I'm originally from Syria. Thank uh, you for the United Emirates. Uh, we haven't had the, the, the opportunity yet to be at the receiving end of any drones, although we have been at the receiving end. Mustafa, Sahib, you may very soon, so... Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but my question is actually related to the question of the clash of civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, it is because of this proposition that, that the West has chosen a paradigm that has proven to be, or we've shown in very clear keys that it is not working. My question is, it seems to me that it is not a clash of civilization, but it's more about the assimilation of civilization, because the West now is behaving in a tribal way that instead of maintaining its moral values as you know, collective punishment is not good, we have to maintain our liberty and freedom. It is the decision makers in, in the West that are becoming more thinking like in a tribal way. They want revenge, they want to, 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 to get even, they don't care about the consequences. Um, what do you think? The impact, and as if we are uh, tribalizing the, the, the Western policy. No, again, we shouldn't blame people just like, um, you know, they are doing it and we are doing it. Uh, as an anthropologist, uh, I find these um, political parties very tribal. In fact, I would tell my team that uh, the Republicans, the Democrats, or uh, here the uh, Conservative Party and the Labour Party, they behave very tribally in their loyalties, in their codes, in their dress codes, in their behaviours. So it's not difficult, and I think many books have been written on this, that there is an element. It may not be exactly tribal the way we think of it, but they are very tribal in their behaviour. Even their, even their associations, the smaller groups within these tribes, coming from one university or the other, or behaving in a certain way, belonging to a club or the other, using a kind of language, coded language, so that they understand each other. All these are tribal signs. We are running out of time, and I think we're going to only have time for three more questions. Would you be willing to take three together? Yes. So, one over there. Yes. Um. Two very quick questions. First, I was very interested in your mentioning of Mullahs being targeted. Uh, mentioning of? Mullahs. 
who? The Mullahs. Mullahs, yes. Uh, because that goes against the narrative of this being a religious war, if they are targeting Mullahs. Uh, and the second question is, um, given your knowledge of the context, how would you analyse the story of the Mullah and Yusuf side? And by analyse, I mean both in the sense of perpetrators and what their motivations might be. Who, who is the second? Mullah and Yusuf side. Oh, Mullah. Yeah. yeah. How perpetrators might have um, justified their actions, but also in the sense of how it was then later played out in the Western media and the narrative around that. Uh, yes, okay, at the back. Yes. Um, so, I'm Sorry, I'm Nima, and I'm here from Antioch, Seattle. So, this is an area that I know very well, but um, I was just looking at you know, the impact about your solution of education and addressing education in tribal areas. And my immediate reaction was actually education isn't something, it wouldn't be something that I could see them welcoming um, and tribally it's not something that they would encourage their daughters especially to be actively involved in. I suppose it leads on from the question that the lady asked earlier. So, I mean, although education might seem a solution, it will take years and years of rebuilding that trust in society to get them to accept this education system that you're hoping to enforce in these areas um, to then overcome the problems that you say. And yes, last question. Interesting. Um, I'm a Quaker, a long time ago, faith in Europe, but um, I'm very interested in the education thing, and you said that you shouldn't be too hard on the madrasas. Um, I, I'm very struck with someone who was the SRR, read a book about the Quran, saying he learned the Quran at his mother's knee. And the education of women must be something that uh, does have to be, must break down the tribal resistance, I think. Well, um, I'm glad that we're ending our questions on the subject of education. Again, I speak as a professor on campus, but also as someone who has been in the field. I can assure you, this is to the second questioner, I'm jumping straight to the second, that women and men in that part of the world want education for their children. Let me show you from the field. If you have any doubt, let me give you a live example. The live example comes from Swat. Malala Yousafzai doesn't come out of nowhere. She's coming out of Swat. Swat is a Pashtun society, deep in the tribal areas, once taken over by the Taliban. That's how Pashtun it is. And the Wali of Swat, in the middle of the last century, not only created free schools for women, but made it compulsory. Pashtun society, Kodawana, Pashtun Wali, and suddenly the Wali of Swat, who is sacred lineage plus political authority, is giving the lead. He sent his granddaughters, my wife, one of them, to the convent, Jesus and Mary convent. Suddenly, every prominent Pashtun family wanted to send their girls to the nuns, the Catholic nuns in Murray. So your thesis that they won't allow them all just doesn't exist in real life. I mean, this is a theory. You may say, maybe they won't like it, maybe they'll visit. No. I found everywhere, whether in Balochistan or in the tribal areas of the old frontier, when I wanted to give them a school, as long as I was fair, and I said, I'll have half your tribe and half your tribe both running the school. They were fine with it. And I will not interfere. They were fine with it. They would give me land. They would give me the, 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 um, the gunmen to protect the school because the next question was, what would they do to the school? Now, of course, 
along come the Taliban. And there you have a problem because the Taliban, and this leads us to the final question, they don't want any kind of schools. Not Western, not Eastern, no schools. They want women to sit at home. So when they took over Swat, one of the first things they did was blow up these girls' schools, which was really, I mean, it's the worst thing I could conceive because the Wali of Swat had really begun to change the map, the demographic, the intellectual map of Swat itself. And one of the prides, and he spoke to me with pride, with tears in his eyes, he said, I got the nuns, the Catholic nuns, to open a convent in Swat. I mean, this is unheard of, this deep in Taliban territory. And who would protect that convent? He would. And they flourished. The nuns flourished. The first thing the Taliban did was attack that convent. And this battle continues so that Malala Yousafzai, this young girl, generations later, is driven by a spirit of education. Nothing is going to stop her. So she's going to go for education as are millions of other tribal women. And what will stop them is this violence. And therefore I go back to the three pillars. Give them stability so that they can check the violence and create schools for their uh, kids. The point about the mullahs being targeted and Malala, I hope I've explained, but the mullahs being targeted is an interesting one. The mullahs are being targeted, it's completely against the narrative, the clash of civilizations. Those mullahs should be leading a jihad against the West, according to the uh, Huntingtonian thesis. In fact, they're being targeted because they're doing what their Islam teaches them to do, which is act as mediators. You know, in your area, you've got all the miyagane. The role of the miyagane is simply to mediate between people. And the Pashtuns don't really think very highly of them. They look down on them, right? And yet, they're there to play a role in society. They're being targeted by the men of violence because that is the second pillar. So you knock one pillar, the elders, you knock the second pillar, the religious leaders, you knock out the civil um, pillar representing central government and nothing checks them then. And I know in Waziristan, uh, the, from my time, there's a very famous... Uh, religious figure Mullah, uh, Nur Muhammad, he was killed. And dozens have been killed in their mosques, leading prayers. So ask yourself, why is this happening? The army is not killing them, the Americans aren't killing them. They are being killed by the militants, very specifically targeted. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sorry we have to bring it to a close, and I'm sorry for those uh, people who had had their hands up for some time, but uh, alas, we've run out of time. Before I... uh, ask you to thank Ambassador uh, Ahmed for his talk. Just one announcement, two announcements in fact. The next seminar in this series is going to be on Friday the 28th of June in the Vera Anstey Room, which is uh, in the same building, uh, at uh, one o'clock. And it's um, Masood Ahmed from the International Monetary Fund talking about economic developments and outlook of the Middle East, North Africa region. Secondly, the books are for sale that part of the room, and I urge you to uh, actually uh, buy them. But thirdly, can I thank you very much uh, for an extraordinarily enlightening talk. This is a wonderful book, and what I particularly like about it is that you're not afraid to use popular culture to make your points. Uh, A couple of my students are in the audience. They know that I bring popular culture whenever I can uh, into the lectures, and I just have to tell you that uh, I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that 2011 Marvel Comics film, Thor, have any of you seen it? It's the Norse god of thunder who's banished from Ashgard in a remote, uh, distant universe, comes back to Earth 
and is finally arrested by the authorities. And when he's being interrogated by presumably a homeland security person, he says, where did you get your training? Was it in Pakistan, <laughs> Chechnya, or <laughs> Afghanistan? <laughs> he said, outer space. <laughs> so this is a deeply serious book, but it has uh, some, some very touching and ironic moments as well, which I think illustrates the scale and scope of the problem. May I thank you to uh, thank uh, Ambassador Ahmed. Thank you.